to their number day by day those who were being saved. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and now the preaching. Well, let's bow our heads and let's pray one more time before we preach. Father, the words of those songs that we sing are, they just resonate deeply inside us because we know that we are prone to wonder. We are prone to leave the God that we love. We are totally undone without your grace, without your mercy, without your sovereign spirit. We would be ruined. Our lives would be wrecked. We would not, we surely would not be here this morning. But you have shown up powerfully in our hearts and we praise you, oh God. What a privilege to be here and to worship with your people. Now God, as we sit before your word, I pray that you would just come with mighty power. And you would just let your word just be so riveting and compelling and motivating for us. Transform us, God. We don't want to come here and just consume. We don't want to come here and just receive teaching and, and, and have our minds and intellects expanded. We want our hearts to be affected. And that will not happen, Holy Spirit, unless you come and penetrate the heart. Do that, I pray, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you're not feeling well, if you're a person who um, is sick and you wake up one day and you decide you're going to get, you need to go to the doctor, you c- it could be that your doctor will ask you a couple of questions. I mean, real basically, one of the questions would be is, is okay, um, what's your diet like? What kind of diet are you eating? Or another question would be, are you getting regular exercise? I mean, these are real foundational questions. Because those are two cr- critical components to health. I mean, your diet and your exercise matter. And in Acts chapter 2, Luke describes the church, and he does that by talking about the church's diet and the church's exercise. And last week, Pastor Mark took us through this Acts 2.42, where he talked about the diet of the church. What was it that the church gave themselves to? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Look at verse 42, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. But not only was their diet healthy, the reality is the early church was exercising. They had a healthy lifestyle. The early church was such a good model for us. It is such a good model for us. And and we need a healthy model to emulate. I mean, let's face it. In our day and age, you look around at the churches that you see today, and sadly, so many churches are drifting away or have drifted away from what church is supposed to be or for what God has called us to do. I mean, when you see some of the things that take place, I mean, you may be tempted to laugh. It's so ridiculous. But really, it's not a laughing matter because the things that take place in some churches today break the heart of God. They grieve him. And what's really humbling for me, especially as I sat through this text and studied it, was that was to think about our own church and to realize that we're not doing everything God has called us to do. And just admitting that up front, we are not. We, 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 are, we are trying to, we are seeking to, but we're not. It's, and it's humbling to study this passage because here's the bottom line for me. As a pastor, I just want us to be as biblical as we can possibly be. I mean, I, I don't want us to, to, to presume that we have this thing figured out because we don't. 
And we need a guide. We need a reliable guide. We're, we're a work in progress. And we're trying each week to further conform ourselves to the word of God. And what God has called us to do, the reality is it's really not that complicated. It might be hard to live Acts 2, 42 through 47, but it's not complicated. The process is not complicated at all. It's pretty clear. And today we're finishing this little mini-series on the second half of our mission statement, which reads this. Heritage Baptist Church exists, the second half says, to make, mature, and multiply disciples. And we've been unpacking each of those words, make, mature, and multiply. And this morning, we're going to see what it means for us to multiply disciples in Acts 2, 42 through 47. Now, I think we could divide the text this way. If you have a copy of God's Word in your lap, look at it. And I think what we could do is divide it this way. Verse 42, what we do, which is really where Pastor Mark was last week. Uh, Verses 43 through 46 is how that changes us. What kind of people does that make us? Okay, and then verse 47 is what God does as a result of those types of people. Okay, so it's pretty clear. All right, that's that's the flow. There's some things we need to do. And if we do those things, then we can trust God will do some things in us and through us for his glory. Now, this text shows us how disciples are multiplied. And and what we see, I think, ultimately is this, is that disciples are multiplied through gospel-centered communities on mission. Okay, let me say that again. Disciples are multiplied through gospel-centered community or communities on mission. All right? Now, that means, I mean, most foundationally, that means that disciples are not fundamentally, fundamentally multiplied by inviting people to come to church and hear and listen to sermons. I mean, we preach and we preach the gospel and we trust that there will be on any given Sunday a number of non-Christians here that will hear the gospel. But we don't think that disciples are fundamentally multiplied that way. I mean, we preach, when we preach on Sunday morning here, we are primarily equipping our people for the work of ministry. This is an equipping time. This is a time for you to be matured. For you to be built up. For you to be prepared to go on mission. So we preach so that you'll be built up. And ultimately that you'll be sent out on mission. Disciples will be multiplied when all of us embrace the idea of us all becoming disciple-making disciples. When each of us begin to, grip, to, to lay hold of that truth, that we are all called by God to be a disciple-making disciple, that's when disciples will start to be multiplied. And it will not happen unless we take personal responsibility. Now, of course, there's an evangelistic thrust to all of our preaching. I'm not denying that. We preach the gospel every Sunday. But the Sunday morning service is not our plan for evangelism at Heritage Baptist Church. In fact, when you study this passage carefully, I trust that you'll see the same thing is true of the early church. Disciples are not multiplied when the church gathers primarily, but when the church scatters into houses all over the city. And those churches, those communities, that, uh, that those communities, the church is Jerusalem, and it's scattered out into various pockets around the city. And those communities were characterized by biblical truth, intimate fellowship, desperate prayer, anointed worship, aggressive evangelism, and compassionate concern for others. And this is what you see in this text. That's a dynamic community. 
Okay, the stuff that, this is so explosive. Acts 2 is an incredibly explosive text. I mean, you can hardly do justice to it when you're preaching. It makes you feel like, I I have no business preaching this text because it is way bigger than me. I can't even wrap my mind around the glory, the, the explosiveness of this text. It's just unbelievable. But nevertheless, that's this community, that's what it is. It's a gospel-centered community, and it's a community on mission. And when people start living like that, disciples are multiplied. I mean, it's just, it just happens. It's a, it's a default reaction. All right? So let me say it again. The Sunday morning event, what we do here on Sunday morning, what we're doing right now is not our plan for evangelism. It's just not. People may be converted by coming to the service, and, and, and sometimes they are, praise God. But our desire to multiply disciples will not be accomplished through the Sunday morning service merely. It's not how disciples are multiplied in the early church, and it's not how disciples will be multiplied here. Acts 2, 42-47 teaches that disciples are multiplied when the church lives as a gospel-centered community on mission. Okay, now, with that said, I said that the text really shows us three things here. What we do, how that changes us, and what God does as a result. But, but let's just concentrate on our part, right? Because we're not responsible for what God does. But we are responsible for what we can do. And we trust that if we give ourselves to the things God has called us to, God is not a reluctant God. God is eager to do all that he longs to do, and he will fulfill it. So we just need to concentrate on what he's called us to do. And, and to do that, let's pick it up where we left off last week. Luke said in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, as I said, Pastor Mark covered these issues last week. But I just want to underscore one point. Look back at the word again, devoted. They devoted themselves to these things. The word occurs six times in Acts, and in each case it shows persistence. They did not slow down or give up on these matters. They were completely sold out and they kept doing these things. That's what it means to be devoted. It's to press in all the more. It's to not be satisfied. It's to say that we don't have enough of this yet. We need more fellowship. We need more prayer. We need to, we need to press in harder and more. And see, I found that in life, and I'm sure this is your testimony too, I found that it's a lot easier to start things than it is to finish. I mean, a lot of people are in favor of starting a lot of things. The question is, are, do we have the, the strength to continue them through to the end? I mean, it's, it's once been said, somebody said one time, that anybody can get 100 people to do something. But the question is, it's easy to start, but are we devoted to something? That's, the, that's another story. Are we going to see it through to the end? Now, we're not going to highlight all these items again, but I do want to go back to one in particular because while they're all important, two of these items get special play in the book of Acts. Which two do you think they are? The two that get special attention throughout the book of Acts is devotion to the Word of God. I mean, you hear constant preaching through the book of Acts and prayer, which comes up all the time through Acts. And I would argue that one of these is a weak point for us as a church. So... What I want to do is I want to highlight on one of them. Because as long as I can remember, this church, praise God, has been devoted to the Word of God. And I'm thankful for that. And furthermore, the issue though is that we have to continue to be devoted to the Word of God. But the weakness, I think, of these two items is prayer. Because without prayer, everything else in Acts 2, 43 through 47, listen, is impossible. It just doesn't happen. I mean, so, so listen carefully. 
Okay? Fervent, faith-filled prayer characterized the early church. I mean, these guys devoted themselves to prayer. And the word of God, particularly the gospel, produces this faith-filled believing prayer. Understanding the gospel, it leads us to ask bold things of Jesus. It leads us to do bold things for Jesus. And, and so we all know about this great outpouring that happens here in Acts 2. I mean, the Holy Spirit falls, Pentecost takes place, but many of us don't, point, don't put together the fact that Acts 2 follows Acts 1. That something significant happens in Acts 1 that prepares the way for Acts 2. I mean, what happens in Acts 1? Look at verse 14 in Acts 1. It says, And they all with one accord continually devoted themselves to prayer. That's Acts 1. That's before Pentecost. But on Pentecost, the Spirit fell. The Spirit came. But listen, He came after 10 days of prayer. Say, where's 10 days? Where's that in the text? Well, here's how that works. Okay? It was 10 days. We know it's 10 days because Jesus, it says in Acts 1-3, that Jesus ascended after 40 days. Okay? Pentecost comes after 50 days. So 50 minus 40 is 10, which means they're in the upper room praying for 10 days before the Spirit falls in Acts 2. 10 days of prayer. Has anybody here ever prayed 10 days? I don't know a single person. I don't know a person that's prayed 10 days. I don't know a church that's done such a thing. You wonder, people wonder, why don't we see more expressions of New Testament Christianity? I mean, it's pretty obvious. These guys are devoted to prayer in an unusual way, in a remarkable way. It's unbelievable. 10 days of prayer in the upper room. But here's the point. In scripture, every major spiritual awakening was preceded by an intense season of prayer. So Joshua 24 and the, re, on, and the renewal of the covenant. Or Nehemiah 8 and the re-renewal of the covenant. Or fast forward all the way into to the New Testament. You get into Acts, past Pentecost. get into Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. And we read this, Acts 4, 31. The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You say, how did that happen? We'll look back at verse 24, which says they devoted themselves to what? To prayer. Prayer. Prayer is the issue. Or go to Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56, and you see Stephen lifting his eyes to heaven. What what are you doing when you're lifting your eyes to heaven? He's praying and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what does he do? He's so filled with the Holy Spirit that he starts preaching to everyone around him. And guess who's converted? The Apostle Paul. Amazing. Just remarkable. And it's all sparked by prayers. We pray. Here's the point. We pray until we see God's glory and are filled with the Spirit. And then we begin to preach the gospel in such a way that even the most unlikely of people are converted. You just open your mouth. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You see the glory of God. You are unreserved in your proclamation of the gospel. And the wildest, most unlikely of people get floored by the gospel and get saved. That, friends, that does not happen unless we're filled by the Spirit. And that type of filling with the Spirit does not happen unless we are on our faces praying and seeking God. This is the pattern. Every spiritual awakening is preceded by serious prayer. Now, if that's the biblical example, but it's also the historical example. Uh, New York City, 1857. 
Jeremiah Lanfear. He began preaching on the street and was extremely discouraged because nobody was listening. Nobody cared. He couldn't get more than a handful of people to stand around and listen to him preach. So he gave himself to desperate prayer instead. He put a little dinky little sign out on the street that said prayer meeting. And, and a few people trickled in. On the first Wednesday, six people showed up for a prayer meeting. They prayed. The next Wednesday, he put the sign out. 20 people showed up for the prayer meeting. The next Wednesday, he put the sign out. 40 people showed up for the prayer meeting. We got a little church now. All right. Eventually, somebody said, you know what? We ought to do this every day. Why, why would they say that? Well, presumably something's happening in that prayer meeting that's pretty exciting. God is doing something. So two months later, the whole auditorium, a whole auditorium in Manhattan was filled with hundreds of people praying at noon. So they started other prayer meetings around Manhattan at noon on Wednesdays. And soon theaters, churches everywhere in Manhattan were filled with men and women praying. And reporters estimated that at one point, 10,000 or more people were praying in lower Manhattan every noon on Wednesday. Churches began having evening services. People were being converted. And in a nine-month period, 50,000 people came to know Jesus Christ in nine months. And back then, in 1857, New York only had 800,000 people. That's more than six, that's 6.25% of the population converted in nine months. That's staggering. Now listen, that's not Pentecost. That's New York, 1857. And I say that because people shy away from Acts 2. They don't believe that God does this anymore. I mean, it's simply a lack of faith, and we excuse ourselves by saying, Acts 2 isn't normative. Well, of course, Pentecost is unique in redemptive history, but the pattern and the practice of the early church is to be emulated by us. Listen, show me a church, show me a pastor that dares to preach Acts 2 as basic, as normal Christianity, and I'll show you a church that has hope for its future. Because if you just toss this out and say, you know, we can't, we'll never aspire to that. We'll, we'll, we'll never do anything. We'll never, we'll never ha- ha- see a move of God upon us in a remarkable way. Then what are you doing? What do you believe in? I mean, as a church, we are called to do great things for Jesus Christ. So we need to have faith. We need to see that, yeah, while Pentecost is not going to be repeated, great and remarkable things can still happen. And Acts 2 is a pattern for us to follow. This is my hope for us. I want us as a church to learn together how to live a type, the type of life that calls for desperate prayer. Here's the issue. Desperate men pray. That, that's just a fact. And if a church isn't living on mission, no wonder it struggles to pray. I mean, th- I was thinking about this. What, if you're not living on mission, what do you have to pray about? Just yourself all the time? Oh, my aunt's sick. I've got somebody in our family who's, who's not feeling well. Or, or, you know, there's this one person that I know that needs some help. But I mean, if you're not a church that's radically living on mission, prayer is going to be dead. I mean, I've often thought, wondered why it's so hard to get a prayer meeting going in the church. I mean, getting a prayer meeting going in the church is like starting a fire on a cold, wet day. Keeping that thing going. But in a church that's not living missionally, prayer is never going to be a point of emphasis. 
It's just not. And here's the question is, do we believe that a ministry of intercession is foundational to a fruitful church? And if so, then somebody will be energizing and mobilizing prayer. We must. I mean, I love the story of Spurgeon and the the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the boiler room. I mean, it's an incredible story. I won't go and unpack it. But the point is, every Sunday morning, there are more than 800 people on their knees praying. And somebody asked, where did Spurgeon get the power that he had to preach? Well, if there's 800 people in the boiler room of their Metropolitan Tabernacle praying every Sunday, you better believe there's going to be great power in that church. But who are we to think that we don't have to pray that way and we're going to experience the power of God? I mean, it's insane that we think such things. So we, we, we must return to an apostolic pattern of prayer. We've lost this in our day. I, listen, I, I recently read that William Carey, the famous missionary from England, John Sutcliffe, and Andrew Fuller once gathered for five hours of prayer. Three men, five hours of prayer, and it said in the biography that each man prayed twice. Five hours of prayer, each man prayed twice. And then it said Carey with particular pungency. You know what that means? That means he was moved emotionally. He was affected emotionally. That wasn't Pentecost, okay? That was England, 1791. Where's that spirit today? That's the question. This is a prophetic, I realize this is a prophetic heralding of prayer, okay? Because we need this, we need this regularly. We need, we need a corrective regularly. How many churches I need a corrective? Our pastoral staff needs a corrective. But here's the question. How many churches are weak and ineffective because they do not cherish the place of prayer? I mean, it's natural for people to forget meetings, but why is it that the prayer meeting is the most forgotten meeting of the church? Think about it. God help us. Often we feel lifeless and we go to God in prayer, but we must pray until we feel picked up and carried along by the Holy Spirit. And friends, that takes time and it requires long sessions of prayer in secret, but it's worth it because the battle will be won or lost on our knees. Do we believe that? Prayer is not a fool's errand. George Mueller said, I have joyfully dedicated my whole life to the object of exemplifying how much may be accomplished by prayer and faith. Paul says in Colossians 4, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. May God help us. So that's what the early church did. And I wanted to spend more time on that because it's important for us. We don't just preach texts. We preach texts that apply to us. We preach them in a way that matters to us as a church. And, and we just need to talk about that. So, now, if we devote ourselves to these four things in verse 42, how will that change us? What kind of people will we become? That's the question of 43 through 46. And I see five things that, that this will make us into five types of people when we devote ourselves to these things in 42. And God will form us. Ultimately, it comes down to this. God will form us into a gospel-centered community on mission. We will embrace what it means to be a missional community. In fact, the church of Jerusalem here was filled with pockets of people living in community and on mission. Now, we need to understand that there's a difference between the church gathered and the church scattered. There's a difference between the corporate event on Sunday morning and our community life. I mean, 
a community group, a missional community group is not a trend. Okay, let's just be really clear about that. That terminology is new, but this thing is as old as Acts 2. All right, so I recognize that language is new and it sounds trendy and sounds like a, you know, a church cliche, a community group, you know, that sounds so churchy. But whatever language you use, I don't care if you call it, you know, a, a, a Christian prayer meeting. The point is, if you're doing the stuff that's here in Acts 2, that it's been around since the early church. And Daryl Bach in his commentary on Acts says that that's exactly what's going on. He says the fellowship in verse 42, which is the, which is the temple, the church, okay, extends beyond the sacred place. And he says, they also break bread in homes. The phrase kata oikon, which means in various homes. Okay. These believers would worship and fellowship together in their everyday environments. They shared life together with joy and sincerity while overflowing with praise to God. Do you see what Bach is saying? Daryl Bach is saying that right here we see a community of worshipers on mission. Now why does that matter? Why, why does this matter? I think it matters because it's this lifestyle that enabled them to aggressively multiply disciples. I mean, look at how the church grows in Acts. In Acts 1, the church is 120 members. Okay? In Acts 2, there's 3,120 post-Pentecost. In Acts 4, the church is all of a sudden 5,000. In Acts 5, we read that... Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, crowds of both men and women. In chapter 6, in verse 1, it says, In those days, the numbers of disciples was multiplying. There's the word. So who knows how big this church got? I mean, it would have been a mega church by our standards. Now, I realize that this is, a, again, a unique time in salvation history. I realize that you cannot simply take this text and sort of follow the approach and expect the same results. That's not what I'm arguing for. That's not the point. But what I think we're supposed to do with Acts 2 is to emulate the basic pattern and example here. And if we want to make, mature, and multiply disciples, then we should follow the example of the early church. I mean, if we don't follow their example, whose example are we going to follow? Church, a church growth guru? I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in following a biblical pattern, a biblical model, and Acts 2 is a fantastic place to start. So let's break this down. There's five characteristics that shaped their life. The first is they began to experience the power of God. Verse 43, then everyone was filled with awe, and many signs and wonders were being performed through the apostles. And, and when, it says, when it says everyone was filled with awe, I take that to mean uh, to be a reference not only to the Christian community, but really to the community at large. And that's how scholars take it. And from the guys that I've read, it seems that that's the consensus opinion. Everyone could sense that God was at work. Everyone. I mean, it was affecting the whole city. Second, they began to experience not only awe, and the power of God, but they began to experience an intense love and care for one another. Verse 44. Now all the believers were together, and they held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property, and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. <laughs> Who does that? That's crazy. Think about that. People are selling their stuff in order to help people on a regular basis. 
I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, man, I'll sell something for you to help you out, you know, this one time. It's another thing to do that all the time. To just regularly sell your stuff in order to help other people. These guys are totally free from love of money and materialism and possessions. The the gospel had worked itself into them in such a way that they're just like, this isn't my stuff anyway. So if I can just get rid of this to help you, then of course I'll do that. This is a default reaction for them. Luke is writing an apologetic to Theophilus, a non-Christian, probably a high-ranking government official. And what I think he's explaining to him that the church is experiencing the type of community and the type of dynamic that the whole world wants. The Holy Spirit was bringing about the type of community that all humans desire. In fact, and and this is why it's such a strong apologetic. I mean, imagine writing this to a guy who says, in the Hellenistic world, koinonia, or or this type of common sharing and fellowship, was considered one of the highest virtues. So he's writing to Theophilus, and he's saying, the church is doing this. The church is experiencing, experiencing this. Why would you not want to be a part of this? In fact, one opponent of Christianity who died in 125, Lucian of Samosota, had this to say. He said, their founder, Jesus, taught them that they should be like brothers to one another, and therefore they despised their own privacy and viewed their possessions as common property. So what we see here is that instead of being selfish, they shared with anyone who had need. Now, just to be clear, this is not an early form of communism. All right. I mean, they did not give all their assets into a common purse and then get their salary from a central committee. That's not what's going on here. Instead, this is a spiritual community, a community that had been radically shaped by the gospel. So here's the point. As we continue through this list, I want us to test ourselves. Have we at Heritage Baptist Church been shaped by the gospel? Because this is a clear test. And if so, to what degree? Okay. So they experience power of God. They experience love, intense love and affection for one another and care for one another. Third, they went to church all the time. Just all the time. Verse 46, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. Every day. Anybody up for church every day? Let's go. Every day. I mean, think about this. Look at these guys. Think about how hungry they are. Because there's a direct, let me say it this way, there's a direct connection between your church attendance and your hunger for God. Do you believe that? I I, I thoroughly, totally, completely believe that. A direct connection. I mean, I have a friend who goes to church seven days a week. And you think that's crazy. I mean, who does that? And how do you even find seven churches? How do you find a church that meets on Tuesday and Wednesday? But if you'll find it in the city, in Owensboro, right now, there are meetings every night of the week in some church. And I know a guy that goes to church seven days a week and we say that's crazy. But listen, it's really not that weird. Now, I think you should commit yourself to one local church. But it's not that weird to want to worship that much. That's not weird. What's weird is that we don't want to worship that much. That's what's weird. People that are hungry for God want to worship constantly. They want to be with God's people. I mean, it's really that simple. Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to just launch a bunch of new meetings. It's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that the meetings that we do have, we should be thrilled to attend. We should be eager to attend. What a privilege. It's phenomenal that we get to do this every week. Do you ever think about this? This is amazing. 
This is the church for which Christ died. This is God's plan for your growth and maturation. You cannot live your life isolated from God's bride for any length of time and call yourself a genuine Christian. That, that's insane. You think about the pattern of the early church. Every day they devoted themselves. They, remember the word devoted? Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. Okay, so the power of God shows up. They begin to experience an intense love and care for one another. They went to church all the time. All right, and fourth, they lived their lives with one another. Verse 46. Every day they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude. Now, big shift here. They're not in the temple here. They're breaking bread from house to house. These are groups of Christians living their lives in community. They're eating in each other's homes. And they're worshiping God together. People that are shaped by by the gospel love Jesus and they live life together. It's that simple. All right? So, that's four. Number five. They were a community on mission. Okay? They didn't just exist for themselves. Verse 47. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. And listen, enjoying the favor of all the people. Now, what's up with that? I mean, the last thing we see here is that these communities do not live for themselves. They live for other people. They were on the move. They were not a stagnating community, sort of terminating on itself, but they were on the move like a river, flowing, constantly moving and going somewhere. This is a moving community. They lived on mission in various areas of the city. They proclaimed the gospel to their neighbors and friends. And notice the phrase, they were enjoying the favor of all the people. All the people. All the people. Not some of the people. All the people. They were attractive to outsiders. Now, how does that happen? I I mean, I thought the world was supposed to hate us. Listen, I, I get it. That the world hates us sometimes. I get that. Okay? I I totally understand that. But that's not the idea. That's not what we're supposed to be doing is being being a type of people that the world just hates. That's not the idea. If that happens because we're being faithful, fine. But that's not what we're supposed to be striving for. The idea is to live such compelling lives of generosity that outsiders long to be a part of us. Do you see that? They long to be a part of it. They want to somehow be involved with this thing that's going on. I mean, could it be that for some of us, the reason non-Christians don't like us is that we're selfish, unloving, and totally individualistic? I mean, who would be attracted to that? Who's attracted to a selfish, unloving, individualistic person? And if we're like that as a corporate whole, why would people be attracted to that? That's the exact opposite of the early church. So let me make this personal into your heart. What's attractive about your life? If you keep to yourself, if you don't live in community, if you don't serve others, if you're not living your life on mission, why would somebody want your brand of Christianity? It's not attractive. That's cultural Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. God help us. So we've seen what we're supposed to be devoted to. We've seen how that shapes us into a community on mission. And now finally, 
This is so good. What God does as a result of that. And the short answer is, listen, he shows up with saving power. Acts 2 is a revival or a great awakening. But the problem with calling it a revival is as soon as you call this a revival, people check out, like I said, and they assume that since this is a unique time in redemptive history, it can never be replicated. And therefore, we shouldn't try to pattern ourselves after it. But friends, that's a huge mistake. Because while it's true that we can't create revival, it's also true that we can hinder it from from coming. I don't want us to lead ordinary lives. We need to have a big vision for our future. But hear me, a big vision requires big sacrifice. Churches don't live missionally. This is the bottom line because it's too hard. It's too hard to live Acts 2. It's inconvenient to live this way. So we need help. And I was just, I was just, just scratching my head this week. I was praying and I'm thinking, God, what do we do? How do we... What do you have to do to transform us into a people that lives this way? And the thing he kept pressing upon my heart is this, is that our hope for change is found in verse 42. As we give ourselves to these things, especially prayer, if we do that, we can trust God will change us. We can't change ourselves. We don't have the power. But God, as we pray and communion with him, can change us. He, he is changing us. God is creating a sense of mission and community here in our church that we've not seen before. So let's continue. Let's follow the pattern of the early church. They're characterized by this amazing balance of theological depth, intimate fellowship, anointed worship, aggressive evangelism, and compassionate social concern. And when that happens, the church becomes unlike any other human community. It's the kind of church, it's the kind of thing that, that we can achieve if God would visit us. But we must give ourselves relentlessly to these matters. And if we do, listen, if we do, God may just fall down upon us. Do you believe that? People will become strange, and if God falls down upon us, we will become a radiant community of people. And people will become strangely and unexpectedly attracted to us. And we will have a deep spiritual and social impact on this community. The result is that we will see a tremendous number of conversions. It happened in Acts. It's happened many times over in the course of human history. Let's seek it. And it will start on our knees. But we need a visitation of God's presence. We need to be restored to a New Testament norm. Now, I'm not saying that Pentecost is norm. Okay? But what I'm saying is that this pattern of living, this behavior is normal and it needs to be our habit. You cannot program spiritual awakening. We, we can't do that. But we can prepare the soil for it. And I think it would be fair to say that the main way in which we invite and seek a visitation of God's presence is by getting rid of everything that stands in the way. Now hear me, this is really important stuff, what I'm about to say. okay? Because there's a negative side to what we have to do to prepare for a visitation of God's presence. Okay, We don't want to just be a human community of people that are trying to live in the flesh and, and do sort of things that sound kind of intuitive and cool and trendy. Okay, This isn't a business. This is a church. We need the power of God here. The only way we're going to get it is on our knees. We need a visitation of God's presence. If that's going to happen, we need him to show up in a remarkable way. This is huge stuff. Okay, So don't lose me here. Listen carefully. We can't program revival, okay, but we can do some things that prepare the soil for it, okay? That's the negative side. We remove everything that hinders it, 
The positive side is that we build the kind of church that God's word calls us to be. It's right here in Acts 2. This is the blueprint. And let's not be content until this text shapes us. A church will not operate in missional force until it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so the question we should be asking is, what will hinder or obstruct a work of God's Spirit? It's a good question to ask. We should be thinking about our church here as an altar where a living sacrifice is prepared. Now listen, we can prepare the altar, but only God can send the fire. But we must remove everything that grieves God's Spirit. So... Let me conclude by giving you three things, okay, that churches do to forfeit a work of God. Three things that churches do to forfeit a work of God. And let's not be guilty of any of them, and then we'll quit. Now listen, here they are, very quickly. Heterodoxy. Heterodoxy is when a church does not uphold the cardinal doctrines of the Bible. And by cardinal doctrines, I'm not talking about secondary matters. I'm not talking about what makes a Baptist different from a Presbyterian and a Presbyterian different from a charismatic. I'm not talking about that. Those, those are all differences within the scope of orthodoxy. I'm talking about a flat-out denial of fundamental doctrines like the authority of the Bible, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary of death of Jesus, who paid for our sins and made us righteous by his perfect obedience. You miss that, you're not a church anymore. So the Holy Spirit's not going to show up and work in a church like that. When the truths of the gospel are denied, we forfeit a work of God's Spirit. May we never depart from the glorious gospel of our salvation. The second way we can forfeit a visitation from God is dead orthodoxy. Not heterodoxy. Listen, dead orthodoxy. Now this is more elusive But it happens all the time. Dead orthodoxy is when we believe the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, but they don't affect us. They don't change the way we live. It's all ethereal. It's all concept. It's categories in our mind. How can a church, you say, Pastor John, how can a church believe in the fundamental doctrines of the faith and still be dead? Well, for one, God says in his word that he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So people that are in the know and think that they have it all together are proud people and God resists that. He always will resist that. It's pretty simple. Dead orthodoxy has to do with people who even though they believe the gospel, they have no real sense of how the gospel transforms their daily life. In these kinds of churches, the Bible is taught. Think about this. Theology is taught. Theology and doctrine is hyper-nuanced. Okay, even to the minutia. People can parse out even fine distinctions of theology. People can articulate what they believe. They can defend their faith. They know God's word. But they have an over-focus on the head and an under-focus on the heart. And when that happens, a Pharisaic attitude often creeps in. And humility and dependence on God are replaced by, listen, arrogance and confidence. Self-confidence. People gather weekly in these churches to be told that we're right doctrinally and everyone else is wrong and this is the only faithful church and everyone else is unfaithful and we are doing everything right and these people are proud and they need to be told every week that they are right and purer than other people. They have a high theological impulse but a very low missional impulse. They tend to repel non-Christians, not attract non-Christians. They tend to isolate from culture, not impact culture. And that is dead orthodoxy. 
and it will kill a church because God's spirit will not work among them in any significant way because they are rooted in pride. Let us never forget God gives grace to the humble. And finally, the last thing that will squelch the spirit and his work is unrepentant sin. When ongoing patterns of sin and unrepentant behavior are kept hidden by a significant number of people in the church, this will suppress the Spirit's work. You realize that there are social consequences to our sin, don't you? I mean, the story of Achan bears this out very clearly. God says, do not take any, do not plunder any of the goods for yourself. And Achan stole some and hid some for himself. And God just stopped blessing Israel and their efforts in, in, in their military advances. Just gone. Achan, one Achan in the camp. This is, this is important stuff. Worldliness will keep a church from greater degrees of blessing. The holiness of God's people is massively important. We are called to be a holy church. Let's pursue this together. So friends, here's the thing. If we want to be a church that makes, matures, and multiplies disciples, we need to do two things. We need to follow Luke's prescription in Acts 2. We need to devote ourselves to those four things. That needs to form us into a gospel-centered community on mission, verses 43 through 46. And then, second, we must remove any obstacles that hinder a profound move of God's Spirit. That's, that's my large prophetic call this morning. We need to, listen to me, we need to remove any obstacles. Oh God, help us. We need to remove any obstacles that hinder a profound move of God's spirit. You are responsible personally for that. Your pastors are responsible personally for that. Church, let us remove any obstacles that hinder a powerful move of God's spirit. So I don't know about you, but I'm not content with just coming to church on Sunday, listening to some sermons, hearing some teaching, going back to work on Monday and living a normal American Christian life. Not interested in that. But I need to be, I need to be helped to be different from that. We were made to be a community on mission. We were designed to make mature and multiply disciples. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we need your grace. When we read this text, it, it, it's scary because we see how far we have fallen from normal New Testament Christianity. But God, we know that we can't change ourselves. We don't have the power. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and powerfully move upon us and change us. Father, as we celebrate now, we're going to celebrate a baptism. That's what we want to see more of. Catherine's going to be baptized. We are excited about her baptism. And the reality is, Lord, is that you, we want you to show up and we want to see a tremendous amount of conversions. So may baptisms flood this church because we're a community on mission. In Jesus' name we pray.